Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have put in the comments section of my Q&A videos. If you put questions in there, I will get them and put them in my queue. Hey, guys. Uh, happy holidays. Welcome to December of 2021, our final month in this year. And what a year it has been, huh? Boy. Um, I wanted to quickly plug my podcast for this week because if you are looking for insights into Scientology auditing and why it is that it's not a good thing for you, I offer an argument that I have made in my podcast and I talk about ethics codes and the auditor's code and the basic essential difference I see between what Scientology auditing is and what psychology and therapy and um, that sort of thing is about because they are essentially different at a core level. And I try to describe my view on that and the facts that I use to justify that view. So I hope you guys will check that out and let me know what you think. Um, had some interesting back and forth in the comments on it already today. Uh, and that's totally fine. I'm totally open to people having different perspectives on it. I just... Um, I, and I and I love you know having conversation about that actually because um, I think I, I think I've got a good argument but like I said I want to hear what you guys have to say about it um, okay and then uh, of course I wanted to also plug the critical conversation show that I did this Friday I hope you guys will check that out Mel and I were here last night uh, recording that talking about holiday stress and some uh, possible um, solutions or things you might do if you're going to run into that crazy uncle or, uh, you know, nutso aunt or whatever, or person you're not necessarily keen on talking to this holiday season, maybe uh, I might have an, uh, an idea of how you might deal with that. So anyway, uh, check that out. And with that all being said, I uh, need to remind everybody Critical Clips as a channel, link below. I actually was in error. I have not been putting the link to that channel on all my videos. I thought I had been, but I did make sure it was in the last few. Uh, so make sure that you uh, click on that. Click the subscribe button on that channel and hit the little bell icon so you get notified when new videos are posted. All right, guys, let's get on with your questions now. Oscar Q. Zilch. Tony Ortega recently posted a promotional video for the Free Winds featuring Sea Org members with swords. Are there actual LRH policies on swords? Did you have to deal with swords in the estate project force or later in your Sea Org career? Or are the swords just props that Miscavige hands out when he wants to make videos? Okay, so what we're going to talk about today is the Sea Org's idea of ethics presence, uh, because swords fit into that. And swords are symbolic, and in the Sea Org, they are merely a symbolic gesture, just like the uniforms and, you know, the caps and the ranks and ratings and yes sir, no sir, and saluting and all the other paramilitary aspects of the Sea Organization and its experience. The Sea Org is sort of the highest level of Scientology. It's the highest level of commitment to the cause. And the Sea Org are the people who are signing the billion-year contracts. When you hear about that, you're hearing about the Sea Org. 
So because they are uniformed and because it's sort of in a naval tradition, the accoutrements of that uniform also include swords. And uh, they've decided on a particular sort of cutlass kind of style of sword with a hand grip cover and a sort of a curved uh, single-edged blade. And that's, that's the sword sort of setup for the Sea Org. And this is part of the symbology that Hubbard talks about with ethics presence, where he there's a policy letter where Hubbard talks about how it is that you establish authority or presence, as he calls it, over other people. And the uniforms and the symbols are part of that. And he and he comments on that. He doesn't particularly talk about or single out swords, but he talks about how symbology is a very important part of establishing authority over other people. Um, he also talks about how there has to be other elements involved as well. It's a, it's a cultural thing. So you have to develop rules and ought to's and this is what we're supposed to do now and that kind of thing and keeping people on their on their shoulds and you know like in other words when people agree to behave by certain codes of conduct you hold them to it and that establishes more ethics presence for you in other words people will listen to you more they might grumble and they might not necessarily enjoy it but you don't care about any of that you're not there to win a popularity contest as a Sea Org member. You're there to be effective and get shit done. And so you expect people to abide by their agreements and you hold them to it. And Hubbard says that's one of the other things that is involved in ethics presence. And, and to a degree, he's right. So, um, so that's all part of that picture. And that's kind of where the swords fit in in a practical sense. Otherwise, they're just they're just like you mentioned in the question, just sort of symbolic and kind of props, really. They only come out during two activities of the Sea Org. This is the only times you really ever hear or see anything having to do with swords. And that is when Sea Org members are being recruited, when new Sea Org recruits are being sworn in. Uh, and what that means is when you sign a billion-year contract, they really want you to get it activated right away. They want you to arrive and get started on their boot camp there, which is called the Estates Project Force, as you mentioned in the question. So they want to get you going right away. But sometimes people have things to do and life situations and houses to sell and cars to sell and kids to sell and all the other stuff they got to do before they can arrive. So um, they will do a big kind. They'll they'll try to make it very ceremonial when the person signs the contract. It's not just their signature on the dotted line that's wanted, but then they actually swear them in with the code of a Sea Org member. And the code of a Sea Org member includes such wonderful things as you know, I promise to uphold, forward, and carry out command intention. And, you know, things like that, right? So you're right into being a part of the group of the Sea Org just by signing the contract and then the swearing in ceremony. It, it sort of helps seal the deal, so to speak. And, with, and, some, and the, the swords come into it because they might have a person, they might have a, a number of people, actually, if they're doing an event, like an recruitment event, they might have the Sea Org Honor Guard show up. And all this is, is some random Sea Org members being pulled and dressed up in the Sea Org white uniform. And then they get swords and they cross them and the person will walk under the crossed swords. And, uh, you know, it just hypes up more of the Sea Org naval tradition and all that and makes it seem so much more important and significant 
uh, as to what they're doing. So, so you'll see swords at events, in other words, at recruitment events. And the other place that you'll see them, and this is um, one day a year, is at Sea Org Day. And this is the Sea Org's internal celebration of its own existence, right, where everybody pumps each other up over being Sea Org members. And there is generally a ceremony that will occur on Sea Org Day, which can sometimes involve the Honor Guard and Color Guard. Actually, it's all the time. They, the Color Guard and Honor Guard come out and do flag, you know, waving ceremonies where they, they sort of play around with the flags and, and do all the, the, the neat flag twirling stuff. And then they'll also generally have a sword ceremony of some kind where they'll do some kind of silent, um, I forgot what it's called in the Marines. The Marines have a silent drill, a silent honor guard drill that they do. And, I, and that involves uh, rifles where they'll do these incredible displays uh, with rifles. And they don't say a word. They just go out and twist and twirl and throw these these rifles around, and it's a group of them, and they'll throw the rifles to each other. If you, you can look this up on the internet, it's it's way cooler than I'm describing it. Um, and this silent honor guard or this silent uh, drill squad uh, inspired, while I was in the Sea Org, the Sea Org sword ceremony or honor guard where they would literally um, do a sword ceremony of, of throwing swords around and, and doing all this twirling and stuff. So they got a little into it uh, from time to time. And that was really kind of an ego trip on the person who was running it, actually. But, um, but that is also another way that they feature into the Sea Org life. And that's that's really all I can say about that. It's almost, this was, this was almost a flash answer thing, but I thought I'd elaborate on it a little bit with the ethics present stuff and the symbology, because I thought you guys might find that kind of interesting. So anyway, there you go. Steve Wood. Does Scientology in any of its multiple publications actually point out in bullet point fashion, or any fashion for that matter, the indisputable wins that you will absolutely have once completing OT8? It seems to me that not much is ever spoken publicly about this, as maybe the reason is that none of what is promised actually happens. Steve, I don't think you're that far off on this one. I think that OT8 is talked about a very, very, very tiny amount in Scientology because it's gone through different iterations and because it has been so controversial, even within the world of Scientology. Let's remember that. In fact, let me just pull up here. There is uh, an entire Wikipedia page on OT Level 8. Uh, just that, and because it's had such interesting controversies. And there's a thing I'll read to you from the page because I thought it was kind of cute and also um, helps answer this question. Because if this is what you have to start with, there's a long paragraph here that I'm going to read to you that sort of summarizes the absolute kind of insanity that is OT level 8, the highest level of the Scientology bridge. And this summary represents some of the last thoughts that Hubbard put down in writing to Scientology uh, as to what core high-level Scientology beliefs are. This is, I mean, this is, this represents the pinnacle of Hubbard's achievement as a spiritual guru, actually. And what does he say? 
Well, he says stuff that was so controversial that they pulled it and revised it. David Miscavige, on his own bat, said, nope, this is having too bad an effect on Scientologists who read it. So we're going to change this, and they changed it all up. Um, But here is what it says. The original OT8 level was met with controversy among Scientologists that completed the level. In the original version, Hubbard predicts an invasion of aliens who plan to take over the universe by activating an inserted genetic implant that will allow for the enslavement of the universe via telepathic mind control. The implant would be activated during the return of the Galactic Confederacy, which Hubbard claimed was quote-unquote rapidly approaching. It was revealed that all world religions except for original Buddhism, quote-unquote, were participating in a conspiracy with the aliens to telepathically enslave the universe. In the level, Hubbard claimed the second coming in the book of Revelation is referring to this event and identifies himself with the Antichrist. Hubbard says he is the Antichrist. And his life with the brief Antichrist period, it mentions and wrote, the Antichrist represents the forces of Lucifer, which are the forces of enlightenment. So Lucifer in Hubbard's mind in this whole picture, the light bringer, is the bringer of enlightenment. And this, is a, this goes back to Gnosticism and knowledge versus faith. And there's a lot of old school beliefs and ideas built up around this whole concept of Gnosticism. Uh, lots of different iterations of it. It's not a single monolithic belief set. You'll find lots of versions of what's called Gnosticism around in history. But Hubbard is on that train of, of thinking philosophically when he starts identifying himself as Lucifer, as the good guy. Uh, Hubbard then describes the historical Jesus as being a homosexual and a pedophile and wrote he was a, quote, lover of young boys and men and claims the saintly figure portrayed in the Gospels are due to the implant mentioned above. Hubbard then writes, quote, I will return not as a religious leader, but a political one with another identity in a body free of religious mania. Right, wrong, dichotomy, and synthetic karma, end quote. And if that sounds like gibberish, it kind of is. And then he will, he says, quote, halt a series of events designed to make happy slaves of us all, end quote. So Hubbard, of course, puts, posits himself as the ultimate good guy who's going to come back. And not only has he given us all of this technology, but then he's going to go off and come back and save us all. So there's a whole savior figure sort of narrative here that is very much along the lines of the Christian Jesus narrative. Hubbard warns that anybody who tries to complete this auditing level without being prepared may spontaneously combust. Yeah. So the negative reactions to OT8 led to the church to revise the level referred to internally as new OT8. Okay. So what I wanted to throw that out there for was imagine you are a Scientologist. You are a high level OT8 Scientologist who has access to this information and it's your job to now market this to Scientologists. (laughs) Right? What do you say? How do you even begin to approximate what this is in some sort of, how how do you allude to this? How do you mention or or break this down in any way when you're trying to talk about, well, what you're going to get out of it? 
I mean, right? And it, and the level is called Truth Revealed. Well, that is really a very wide open statement. Anything could be given as the truth. I mean, you could have a level OT8, truth revealed, and the and the the, the truth that's revealed to you is that you know chocolate uh, ice cream is is really great, right? I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily imply that what's going to be revealed is going to be that amazing. So, truth revealed is not that wonderful of a thing. But what they ended up settling with is that this level addresses the primary cause of amnesia on the whole track and lets one see the truth of his own existence. This is the first actual OT level and brings about a resurgence of power and native abilities for the being himself. Now, in my podcast this week, I sort of uh, harped a little bit at one point on this point of what does it mean when somebody tells you they're going to bring you to higher states of spiritual awareness and ability? Does that really mean anything? No, doesn't really. I could call anything a higher state of spiritual awareness and ability. This assumes that there are graduated states of, of higher and lesser value in one's spiritual life. Okay, what's a spirit? <laughs> How do we differentiate a spiritual experience from a lived experience or a physical experience? What are these words? I mean, once you start breaking this down, and if you have a critical mind, these words quickly devolve into meaningless gibberish. They mean, in other words, whatever you want them to mean. Now, that's okay. I'm not trying to deride everybody's spiritual reality. I'm merely pointing out that these words don't communicate very well. And they don't get across very exact ideas. Your idea of spirituality, as you're sitting here watching this right now, is your idea. And maybe you've got a book or a set of books somewhere or some videos or some DVDs or, or some other source material that you can point to and go, this is what's spiritual. Great. According to that, according to that book you read, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really mean a whole lot for me because my concept of what a spirit is and what spiritual experiences are is probably vastly different from what yours is. So how do we talk, you know, intelligently about higher and lower spiritual states of awareness and ability or personal immortality that Scientology offers? Where's the proof in that pudding? I mean, how do you even get there? How do you even begin to think that that means something substantive and real? It doesn't mean anything, right? And, and, and as terms of evidence or proof, how do you prove immortality? Spiritual immortality. The guy's body died, so he, he's still going on. Show show me that. Like, you see what I mean. So the I only bring this up not to castigate belief, but to bring up the fact that these words are meaningless. You know, when you talk about the primary cause of amnesia on the whole track. So the whole track in Scientology, I should have said this earlier. The whole track is the entire set of experiences you have had as a spiritual being in this and any other universe you've ever occupied. 
every memory you've got of your entire existence in and your entire experience of that, that's the whole track. So amnesia on the whole track. We're going to solve that. We're going to make it so that you can remember everything that ever happened to you anytime, anywhere, and under any concept of those words. Well, that's a pretty heady thing to say. But again, how do you prove it? Oh, 76 trillion years ago, I was uh, playing bowling balls with some planets. <laughs> you can say anything and, and get away with it when you're talking in these kind of terms, right? So I only point this out, Steve, because I wanted to show up the, the sort of tenuous spider webby sort of intangibility of all of these statements, all of this stuff that you're going to make, these, these truth claims that people can make about these various versions of Scientology and um, what it is and what it's not. And the fact that if you're not prepared for it, you're going to spontaneously combust. <laughs> I, thought that was, I thought that was a pretty good Pretty good threat. I have read everything I can get my hands on about OT8 outside of the church, and I haven't spontaneously combusted yet. However, it needs to be noted, and if you read through the whole Wikipedia article, you'll find that the Church of Scientology has verified through its legal machinations in trying to sue over copyright claims, it has verified that this, that this stuff that we're reading and talking about it is legitimately what L. Ron Hubbard wrote, because you can't bring a copyright claim against somebody if they're not violating your copyright. So they have to actually be using exactly what you are, you know, your copyrighted work. So when you bring the suit, you're saying, hey, that's the original and you're using it and you don't have the right to it. So Scientology basically admitted that this was OT8 and they had to change it around and I guess what they changed it to has something to do with your, you know, discovering um, your true nature in relation to the, um, the, the uh, to God. It says here, the revised one is dated 1991, three years after the original OT8 was released. And um, it's something about the secret of the relationship between the Supreme Being and uh, you as a Thetan. And both are infinite, but the Thetan is unable to perceive its infinite identity due to confusions and distortions caused by the physical universe. So the purpose of this level is to remove those impediments and thus know your identity from origin to infinity. And that's what they now are promising as uh, the results of OT8. But they don't even say that much about it. That whole description comes out of uh, Jesse Prince and his revelations about it. So that's what you get on this answer, Steve. I hope that this was illuminating or satisfying in some way. It's, you know, I mean, it really, I'm sort of saying at the end of this question that it's really all just huffery and puffery and you can get away with saying anything you want to about this level. But they say so little about it, I think, because David Miscavige is probably you know, a little leery about this whole thing from the whole negative feedback experience they had on it. So that's what I can say. There you go. Adam Masters. I was reading the latest article by Tracy McManus about the Scientology situation in Clearwater 
It describes how entities owned by Scientology members were buying up property around the flag land base and leaving those properties undeveloped. What are they trying to achieve? People have mentioned they want a buffer zone around the flag land base, but why would this be important to Miscavige? Why go to so much trouble and spend so much money? There are plenty of high-security buildings owned by governments and corporations in built-up areas. Why does Scientology feel the need to own entire city blocks? Is it just more Miscavige paranoia, or is there a more rational reason, as far as any Scientology reason, is rational? Well, to get right to the point on this, because I've already done podcasts and whole things covering this and breaking down Clearwater and the Scientology threat to Clearwater, and Aaron Smith-Levin has talked in, you know, in uh, gory detail about this with me and on his own show, I want to all I'll say here in cutting to the chase is I believe that David Miscavige is doing all of this simply in the spirit of fair gaming the Clearwater government. I think he's buying up these properties to show that he can that he wields economic power that has influence in Clearwater or, and could have a kind of mysterious, uh, well, there's a sort of a mystery connected to it. In other words, Tracy is doing this reporting and showing up, oh my God, they bought this before anybody knew about it. And they bought this before anybody knew about it. And they popped up over here and bought this. What, where are they going to pop up next? And this is philosophically how L. Ron Hubbard says you should approach or an attack on an enemy or adversary. He calls it being Fabian after, I believe, a, an old Roman, I think it's a Roman general named Fabian or Fabius or something like that. And the idea here is Hubbard interprets it, regardless of the real history of Fabian, that what Hubbard says is that you have to be mysterious. When you, when you are a lesser force, going against a greater force or, you know, a hard, a larger numbers, you have to basically engage in these kind of guerrilla tactics. But you also have to be Fabian, which means you appear and disappear at will. The, the enemy never knows where you're coming from. You're going to you attack over here and then seemingly impossibly you then appear over here and you're attacking from their flank and then you disappear again and they don't know where you're coming from. And then you appear somewhere else and hit them again. This kind of strategy of disappear and appear and hit hard, hit fast, always attack, never defend. This is Hubbard's military strategy or how to go about dealing with, you know, bigger forces. And so Scientology considers that the Clearwater government is an enemy of them. They have acted adversarially to Clearwater since the very beginning. And so this effort to buy all these buildings up or appear to have all this power and have this land grab is an attempt to depower the Clearwater City Council and anybody else in Clearwater who's trying to take on Scientology because look at all this money we have, look at what we can do, and look at how you don't even know all the things we're up to. I mean, Tracy's reported on this and this and this, but is that all? Is that all we got? Is there more up our sleeve, right? Because they're willing, Miscavige has already shown with this property that was adjacent to the aquarium that he wanted so badly. Um, he's already demonstrated he's willing to pay more than top dollar. If he wants something, he wants it and he wants it now. And Clearwater has not cooperated with him. And now we have this new city manager who uh, Miscavige recently met with and a couple other city council, I believe. 
And, you know, he's now saying we have these interests. We want to work with you guys. And the city manager being the new city manager just came on the job this year. And he is demonstrating that he is as naive and frankly stupid as every other city manager and city council member who has thought that Scientology is going to roll over and turn a new leaf and play nice and we can forget all the adversarial nonsense of the past and start newly and move forward. That's what he basically said. I, I retweeted that quote, actually, because it was so strikingly stupid. I mean, the man clearly has not read one word of Clearwater history with Scientology to say something so asinine. Or there could be other reasons why he might be approaching it from that way. Naive is the best word I can use. Grossly stupid is, I think, a more actual approximation of how he's approaching his job as the, city clear, as the Clearwater city manager. Um, I just I just can't imagine how anybody on day one of their job would say something like that about Scientology unless they just have no clue what they're talking about. And that seems to be the case. So Miscavige has been getting the upper hand with Clearwater City Council and, and the Clearwater City Managers from day one um, because they are timid, because they're afraid, and because they want to somehow have this delusion that Scientology is going to play nice with them. And so Scientology just kind of gets away with whatever it wants in Clearwater in that regard. They don't have the free ability to do whatever they want there, but they act like they do. And nobody really has stepped forward from, this, from the level of the city government to tell them enough is enough. No more. They don't do that. And that's why we desperately needed Mark Bunker and now Aaron Smith-Levin on, on that city council to push back on that kind of nonsense. You know, there are districting issues. There are zoning issues. There are things that the city Clearwater, the, the Clearwater City Council can do to sort of keep Scientology at bay, but they don't do those things. And, um, and Aaron and Mark, of course, have, have made it clear that it is high time that those actions happen and that perhaps Scientology's tax-exempt status even be called into question. And that is uh you know is a threat is a is a very direct threat to Scientology. So so I think Miscavige is doing this whole thing for an intimidation factor for that Fabian strategy thing I was mentioning and because he simply wants to throw his weight and money around in that town and let people know under no uncertain terms that he is the guy to be reckoned with, and he is not um, someone to be trifled with. I think Miscavige is all about that kind of I'm, you know, the huffery and puffery kind of attitude. And I, and I think that drives this a lot more than any kind of rational thinking or rational plan. You know, I, I think in Miscavige's eyes, he's like, give me another 20 years, I'll own all of it. And then what are you going to do about it? You bastards. You know, I think that's how Miscavige is approaching this. And I think that uh, as long as the city uh, council and the city manager play footsies with him, he'll keep getting away with it. So there you go. 89 Magpie. Do you believe there is anything you could write to a Scientology address that the recipient of the letter would read and actually get them thinking that it's all a waste of their life and talent? Is there a location that has been set up in the country where a defector can go to first hide and get on their feet? Has anyone thought of selling up an organization for those just leaving the church? 
Are there a group of volunteers dedicated to covertly retrieving those who wish to leave? And finally, is there any way to communicate to the entire organization at once, i.e. a mass email list or something of that nature? All right. Thank you for this series of questions. Since they all are sort of uh, so closely related, I thought I would just take it all up at once. Um, as far as some being able to write something into Scientology that will have some kind of an effect, I mean, not really. Kind of, if you know the person you're writing to and you know something about them as to what it is they might have doubts, fears, or reservations about that you might be able to exploit or, or discuss. But uh, otherwise, no, not really. They're just going to throw it away. And, and, and that sort of thing really just helps them double down on their beliefs more so than it does give them reason to have doubts. If you were to say stuff like, you know, have you been paid this week? Or, you know, when was the last time you were yelled at? Or is there, you know, some, or have you given up too much of your life for Scientology? Have you ever felt any regrets about how much you've given over? Are you getting as much as you're uh, giving? You know, you could ask kind of sharp and pointed questions like this or, or a million variations of them. And it might have some effect on the person who happens to open the letter, or it might not. It's totally random who you're going to reach. So it's a shot. I'm not saying don't do it, but I am saying it's going to have, you know, it's going to be a huge question mark as to what effect you're going to have on that. But it's not, It's not, I'm not saying don't do it. I, I'm saying that, you know, if you're just sending them in randomly, cross your fingers, maybe, as far as, um, you know, is there a location set up where defectors can go? Well, if there was, I wouldn't tell you guys about it publicly because Scientology would just go destroy it. I mean, you got to understand some of the questions you guys ask me in a public forum are really private type questions like this where I, and I had to stress that because you guys need to know that we can't just talk openly and publicly about recovery centers or how to get people out of cults. Because the cults listen to us. <laughs> and if I gave you the exact address and phone number of people who are willing to help people get out of Scientology, well, Scientology is going to try to do something about that. So are the Jehovah's Witnesses. So are the 12 tribes. So are Christian cults. I mean, all these groups, you know, are, are kind of have an interest in their own survival and they have an interest in people who are trying to take them down or are trying to help ex-members, you know, they really do have a big, huge problem with things like the Aftermath Foundation. And so what all I can really send you to in this regard is the Aftermath Foundation, because that's the only group that's sticking its nose up out of the ground and saying, hey, we're here, we're public, and we are here to help people who've gotten out of the Sea Org and need some help. They do not have a physical address where you go or where somebody is going to be certainly able to go if they leave the Sea Org because that depends on where they left from and what resources and volunteers are available to maybe take them in and help them out. Those things do exist, but we can't talk about it publicly here. You'd have to contact the Aftermath Foundation directly via their website and, um, and then they start arranging all of that in secret. And that's how that kind of works. And if you do have an idea of wanting to help out the Aftermath Foundation with that, we could use the help. They could use the help. We, you know, we all in the, I say we, as far as the, you know, the ex-Scientology world, um, you know, the Aftermath Foundation does good work. And it's the only group, like I said, of, uh, consists of former Scientologists helping people get out of Scientology. So, 
Um, so that's what that's all about. As far as has anyone thought of setting up an organization for those leaving the church? That's the Aftermath Foundation. Are there a group of volunteers? Yes, that's the Aftermath Foundation. And finally, is there any way to communicate to the entire organization at once? No, there's not. You'd have to have access to Scientology's uh, confidential internal servers and drives and, and email lists and stuff, and they're never, ever, ever going to give just give that out to anybody. So good luck accumulating that. There you go. Hamish Downey. Chris, have you watched the Hollywood Reporter Roundtable for Drama Actresses? It is a wonder, considering that Nicole Kidman is an SP, that Elizabeth Moss has been allowed to be photographed together, let alone talk to each other. How did they pull this off? Or has Elizabeth Moss finally left Scientology and I can enjoy her new show with a clear conscience? Uh, yeah, no, that was just PR. <laughs> See, Scientology does have some freedom of play in regards to what they can and can't do to respond overtly or covertly to the negative reports about it. Canceling the RPF internally was one of the things that they did in order to respond to criticism, but they didn't make any big screaming announcements about it. They just did it. Uh, there is no more RPF, as, as far as we can tell. I've had numerous confirmations of that from within, from people who have contacted me ostensibly from within the church, uh, confirming that. So, um, so there's that. Uh, as far as this, this situation goes, though, with Elizabeth Moss, we have said many times that celebrities are the exception to all the rules. And Elizabeth Moss meeting up with and doing this thing with uh, Nicole Kidman, well, isn't that a great way for the church to show, oh, look at all those liar critics who say you can never talk to an SP because we let Elizabeth Moss do it. Well, they probably prepped her up one side and down the other, and I'm sure the things that they talked about were all very fluffy and nice, and they didn't get in anything really serious, and they certainly didn't even go anywhere near talking about Scientology. Elizabeth Moss knew going into that that Nicole Kidman would not want to have a word about Scientology, wouldn't want to go anywhere near it, and as, as because Nicole has demonstrated very, very clearly that she doesn't want to have anything to do with that, and she's probably also signed some NDAs along those lines when she divorced Tom and when she got away from Scientology. So there's probably things that she can't say about it if I was going to fathom a guess in that direction. Maybe I'm wrong and maybe Nicole did not sign any NDAs, but it still seems pretty clear she doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't bring it up in interviews. She doesn't go there. And I don't exactly know why, but knowing how close she's been in Tom Cruise's orbit... I'm pretty sure NDAs have something to do with that. Uh, and like I said, it gives Scientology a chance to sort of make it look like, you know, we critics don't know what we're talking about. And anything they can do to subtly sort of throw that out there is, is good for them. So that's, that's what I think was going on there. All right, let's do some flash answers. Adria Vici Haloup. Have you heard of the Star Wars Ewok Adventures, Caravan of Courage, The Battle for Endor, 1984 and 85? Have you watched them? If so, what are your thoughts on them? Adria, no, I have not watched these because I can't stand Ewoks. Uh, I'd never have. Don't like them. I think they are. I think they were designed for toy shelves, and I don't like that part of Star Wars. So, uh, no, I haven't watched those. Don't want to have anything to do with it. 
Gern Blatston. We hear all about the vitamins that Scientologists take. Does Scientology manufacture them or own a stake in the company that makes them? No, as far as I know, Scientology, the Church of Scientology itself has no official ties with any vitamin manufacturers. However, there are Scientologists, uh, prominent ones, who have done vitamin production and distribution, most notably Peter Gillum. He was uh, famous in Scientology through the 80s, 90s, 2000s for having a vitamin distribution company. I don't know if there are other Scientologists who have taken up that mantle, but... Uh, That's what I can say about that. Travis, does Dracula worry about COVID? No, Dracula does not worry about COVID because Dracula is dead, or rather, more specifically, undead. So he's not going to be killed by something like a virus because he's already been killed, and the way that he is being kept alive is through blood. If that blood is diseased, it might not necessarily be the best blood for him and maybe gives him an upset tummy or something. But uh, since when you're already dead, viruses are not really the big threat that they are to us. All right, and that is our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed my answers, and I hope that they brought some clarification and illumination to the subject of Scientology and the other things we talked about. Happy holidays, guys. Thanks for coming around, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.